want you to take your Bible and turn to Hebrews chapter 7, and then I'm going to do an old school thing that you can't do. I was going to say, and put your bulletin in Hebrews 7. We don't have bulletin anymore, but put something there and turn over, if you would, to Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm written by the shepherd king David, and it's only the second time in the Old Testament that the name Melchizedek is mentioned. We had a young family in the church this week, had a baby boy. I immediately suggested that they name him Melchizedek, but I got a gracious note from them. Uh, They rejected my suggestion, and they named him Felix instead. I have no idea what that has to do with anything. But David's considering the fact that kings don't step off of their thrones, walk out of their palaces, and descend the hill to the valley to meet the needs of the lessers. And yet here is the king of Salem, the king of peace, the high priest of God most high going down to minister personally to Abraham as he's making his journey home. So a thousand years after that event, King David writes this messianic psalm about a greater Melchizedek that is yet to come. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's an ancient picture of the victorious commander placing his boot upon the throat of those that he has conquered. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of of your enemies. And there's this portrait again, where you have the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the the priest of the most high God ruling on that 2,700 foot high hill sandwiched between the king of seduction, the king of Sodom, and the decadence of the Canaanite kings around him. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. Every day you'll be refreshed and strengthened. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment upon the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift his head up high. He will, in other words, his victories will be so stunning that he'll have time to pause in the midst of the battle and let Gideon refresh himself. Now, last week we looked at Melchizedek in the first 10 chapters of chapter 7, or the first 10 verses of chapter 7, and as I'm reflecting back on the life of Melchizedek, I made myself a punch list of questions that had the Spirit of God consulted with me about writing the story of Melchizedek, I would have liked to have filled in a bit of information. I wondered, did Melchizedek ever wonder why I'm here? Do you ever contemplate, what is, what is the purpose or the meaning of my life? Why is it that I arise every morning just to maintain peace and tranquility in this elevated city? 
I would like to know how many legal cases appeared before his courts. He was the final authority, the final judge over his kingdom. How many animals were sacrificed on his altars as he called sinful people to repentance? How many times did his security forces have to quell an uprising either within the city or protect the city from enemy assaults on the outside? How do you maintain a city of shalom, a city of peace, while he's living between cities of moral seduction and kingdoms of incredible, indescribable decadence? I wondered how old he was when they crowned him as king. You read in the Chronicles, they give the age. Some of the kings were anointed at age eight. How old was he? The other commandment, what was his commitment to the living God? Was it a childhood faith? Or was that a decision of his heart when he was anointed the king? I wonder if he knew that he would be remembered for just one thing in his life if this is the moment that he would have treasured. Or if we were allowed to read his private journals, his diary, would he have marked the day that he met Abraham as a day of memorable significance? 4,000 years later, we remember one day, one act of grace, one thing. When you get into the New Testament, it's stunning that Jesus never one time mentions Melchizedek. Paul doesn't mention Melchizedek. John doesn't allude to Melchizedek. Peter doesn't include him. James, Jude, they don't include Melchizedek. But you come to the, to the unauthored, we don't know who the author is of Hebrews, and he mentions him seven different times. But when he refers to him, he calls it the order of Melchizedek. This is the, this is the fraternity or the, 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 the club, as it were, of Melchizedekan reign. Chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 20. Chapter 7, verse 11. Again, chapter 7, verse 17. And though he was also a king, thus the model for Christ's own ministry is both a priest and a king. It is his role as the mediator before the Most High God that is highlighted in this particular letter. The 864 mentions of priests throughout the Scriptures point out just how essential it is that there be an appointed and approved mediator to represent sinful men before a holy God. With 35 such mentions in the book of Hebrews alone, this is the focal point of the apostle's message. From the time of Aaron's first appointment to the writing of the letter to the Hebrews, it is reported that there were no less than 83 consecutive high priests who served. The length of their public ministry is defined as, according to Numbers chapter 8, as age 25 to 50, upon which then they would step aside and they would just become the guardians of the worship. Now the laws pertaining to the priesthood were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The significance of their ministry was a reminder that, and as I said last week, we, we're unfamiliar, we're not, it's not pedestrian for us to think in terms of priests in their presence, or it's any more than kings in their presence, but to the Hebrews, it was a reminder that there is an access made available to God, that there are sacrifices that will ultimately be considered acceptable, that there is the hope of ultimate full and complete forgiveness. 
The presence of a priest was a reminder that there is a way for a sinful man to communicate with a holy God. But the law pertaining to the priesthood and the sacrifices was temporary. Chapter 7 is, it is a difficult one to read and to unpack not only for us, but for the first hearers in that they believed that it was in the law, the sacred law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai that they would find eternal life and their salvation. So the apostle lists out in this particular text four propositional statements regarding God's eternal purposes for the priesthood. Notice how, as I read verses 11 and following, I'm sure most of us will get totally twisted and lost in the maze. But notice how he writes it. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of who these things were spoken belonged to another tribe. That is, uh, no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. His first proposition is this. The Levitical priesthood is impotent, produce moral perfection. The law was given in order to drive sinners to spiritual insanity. The intention of the law was never external behavioral modification to such an extent that through reforming my behavior, I will somehow become acceptable to a holy God. But the law was imposed in order that in every effort that I made, I would come up short. So that in desperation, I would cry out to God for a provision for someone who could save me. Because it proved to me I could not save myself. That's the emphasis that Paul gives over and over in the book of Galatians. Salvation cannot be provided in the law. He goes on here in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It was never God's intention that the keeping of the law would make one acceptable to a holy God. So his purpose from the beginning was to provide a second form, that is a second priest not yet introduced in that time. It is the story of Moses and Aaron, how God called Moses up on the holy mountain and he gave him the Ten Commandments. This is what the people of God will look like. This is how they will reflect the character of the God that they served. But as soon as he brought them down, they had already broken them at that moment. You see, the problem is that man's problem is not external. It's not behavioral modification issues, but it's internal. It's the issue of the heart. And an outside set of rules and all of the animal sacrifices could do nothing to touch the condition of the human heart. 
Notice, we'll go back up here to verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The governing rules of the priesthood were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. It, it, it prescribed that those who would be priests would not only be of the tribe of Levi, Levi was the thirdborn son of Jacob, but they would be narrower than that would also be prescribed for those who were the descendants of Aaron. That was the guideline. That, because God knew that sinful man needed a mediator, somebody between them and God. But in order to accomplish that, they needed a better kind of priest. Notice in verse 14 it says, it is evident that our Lord has descended from Judah in connection with the tribe of Moses has nothing about priests. The Levites were the priests. Jesus is from Judah, which is why it says in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, he's called the Lion of Judah. It, it is the tribe of the kings. In Genesis, in chapter uh, 49, as Jacob is pronouncing blessing upon his children, when he comes to his son Judah, he pronounces his tribe to be the tribe of the kings. As Melchizedek was both a king and a priest, as he was a Gentile and not a Hebrew, he was not from the tribe of Levi. So Jesus from the tribe of Judah is also both a king and a priest. So the second proposition that he makes is this. God's eternal plan provides a better priest and a better sacrifice. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. You see, the problem with the priesthood as they knew it was simply this. It had nothing to do with the priest's character. It had nothing to do with his values. It had nothing to do with his spiritual maturity. All it meant was that you were born in the tribe of Levi and that your ancestry DNA would trace you back to Aaron. And that was sufficient to qualify for you for a lifetime of service, in, first of all, in the tabernacle and then in the temple. That's why you end up with the sons of Eli, who were wicked men, but they were practicing priests. They were, they were embezzling from the, from the temple treasuries and they were immorally involved with the young women that served in the temple and their father Eli went to them and said the report of the people about you is not good but he did absolutely nothing to interfere with that even godless men because they had the right DNA they could trace their ancestry could serve we need a different one and in this case we receive one who by the power of an indestructible life one who was above the powers of sin, one who was above the empowerment of the grave, one whom death could not kill, one whom the grave couldn't hold, one who Satan could not defeat. We needed one who had an indestructible life. So God's plan was, now we read it in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. They were just simply ancestors of Aaron, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, Psalm 110 verse 4, the Lord has sworn, I will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. 
Therefore, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The whole purpose for the priesthood was to make a way for sinful man to enter into the presence of a holy God. They could not do it themselves. They they were unworthy to stand there. So God provided intermediaries, those individuals who would receive their sacrifices, offer their sacrifices, and God in His grace would look upon it and the whole purpose is so that sinful man could draw near without fear to a holy God. He said it over and over in our letter. Notice chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. What is the throne? It's where the righteous holy judge, as Abraham would say in Genesis 18, it's where he dwells, it's where he rules, that he would give us the opportunity to without fear enter into that. Chapter 7, verse 19, he has given us a better hope through which we can draw near to God. Notice chapter 7, verse 24, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, the word means forever, those who draw near to God through Him. Or chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, he's talking about the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, that could never make perfect those who draw near every year. They would bring their offerings and the high priest would enter in behind that veil into the holy, holy, and there he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. But it was only a covering for the sins of the past year. It had no efficacy at all for the sins to be committed that day or going forward. It simply could not make perfect. That is, it could not transform the inner man. It could not cleanse the sinful heart. Chapter 10, verse 22. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What is it that makes it possible for us to go directly to God without an intermediary, without a priest in between? It's because of what Jesus has done himself. He not only is the priest that brings us into God's presence, he is also the sacrifice that makes it possible. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. God gave us a better priest in order that without fear, with a clean conscience, we can stand before a holy God. Which brings us then to the third proposition. And that is this, our salvation is a forever salvation because our advocate lives forever. Notice verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They were good priests and they were bad priests. They were priests that you liked and priests you didn't like, but it didn't really matter because the wages of sin is death and they were sinful men. And they would serve from 25 to 50. After 50, they would serve as guardians over the ministry. But at some point, you would read in the newspaper their obituary that they would die. It was a constant turnover. He he on the other hand, holds his priesthood permanently because he 
continues forever, which draw the line back up then to the power of the indestructible life. Death couldn't kill him, the grave couldn't hold him, and Satan couldn't defeat him. He died in our place, but God raised him from the dead, and when he was raised from the dead, he was raised never to die again. Consequently, he is able to save forever to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is always praying on our behalf. John chapter 17, verse 9. You want to know how Jesus prays for us? On John chapter 17, you have the privilege of eavesdropping on God talking to God. I want to encourage you that uh, in February, uh, we do an annual, uh, the Bible Church Collective does a Bible conference. We had to skip last year because of COVID, but we're hosting again the end of February, and uh, six men are going to preach through John 17. Jesus says in John 17, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus lives continually to pray for us continually. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? who indeed is interceding for us. The adversary would accuse us of failure, and he's right. We don't live a perfect life. We're not sinless at all times. But we have one who is seated at the Father's right hand, and he is our representative. Or as he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he is our advocate. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have a lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Just as Melchizedek was the king of righteousness, so Jesus Christ himself is the king of righteousness. And he is seated at the Father's right hand. He is the propitiation for our sin. He is the one that paid the required penalty in full. He is the one who by his own sacrifice, he not only is the priest offering the sacrifice, but he himself is the sacrifice. And because he did that. When you sin, God does not look at you in your sinful condition, but rather He looks at you through the righteous robes of Jesus because He satisfied God's wrath one time and for all. Therefore, there is a better hope. Our living advocate saves by the power of His own indestructible life. So, His proposition for is that Jesus Christ, God's only Son, is the perfect priest and king forever and ever. Notice verses 26 to 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, in their sinful condition, needing sacrifices for their own sins. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect 
forever. He gives his resume, his character description here. He is first of all holy. The one who is seated at the Father's right hand. I don't recommend that you defend yourself when you get into the high court of heaven, but that you allow Him to stand in your behalf. And He is set apart for that purpose. That's what it means to be holy. That the Father set His Son aside for one particular purpose. And that is to be your advocate and mine. Secondly, He is innocent. It is interesting when they put Jesus on trial that the two kings, or the two authorities before whom they brought him, both, you need two witnesses to confirm an issue, both Herod and Pilate said, we find no fault in him. He is guiltless. He's innocent. He lived for 33 years and they had to come up with trumped up charges because no one could find anything that he had done. He is unstained. Somehow he was able to become flesh and live among us and live with sinful people. And yet by his exposure to that, the Jews were always worried about ceremonial defilement. They couldn't go to funerals and they had to be sure that they washed their hands before they eat meals and all of those things. And yet he was able to live among sinful people and he was undefiled, he was unstained, and he was also separated. That is, he was unique and different from them, but he wasn't isolated from them. In fact, one of the great assaults on him was that he was too friendly with sinners, that eats with tax gatherers and certified unsavable sinners. And yet in his grace, he was able, as it were, to touch the lepers, not command the leprosy leave, but actually to touch the lepers. And without being stained, defiled, in that contact, without isolation, he would able to heal them. But he is also exalted. Here he says that he has been exalted above the heavens. You remember when Stephen was being stoned for his preaching the gospel to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And right before he dies, he looked up and he said, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He said in Acts chapter 1, to the disciples that are standing there with their jaws hanging open going. And the angels said, this same Jesus that you have seen go into heaven, he will return in like manner as you have seen him go. When you struggle with how to navigate through life, the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians said, you do it by fixing your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is not only exalted, but he is sinless. Unlike every other priest who had to first of all go through a ritual of sacrifice to cleanse his own sins, then to represent the people before God. Jesus had no sin for which to offer sacrifice. So when he offered himself as a sacrifice, he died. The wages of sin is death, but his death wasn't for his own sin. His death was for your sins and mine. And he is also sufficient. He offered himself First, his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. There is no need for Jesus to repeat the sacrifice. They would repeat it every year on the Day of Atonement. Jesus never repeated it because his death was fully sufficient to cover the sins committed by the people of the world. But last of all, he is eternal. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This second Melchizedek, this greater king of peace, 
this king of righteousness, this high priest of the most high God. Death couldn't kill him. The grave couldn't keep him. And Satan couldn't defeat him. That's the heart of the gospel. It's the good news. We who are broken, rebellious, sinful people, separated from a holy God, no ordinary priest, no earthly offering, no crafted system is able to bridge that gap. We desperately need a Savior. We need the perfect Son of God who became a human being to represent us before God as our great advocate, our forever high priest. Because he was perfectly obedient, keeping all the law, and lived an indestructible life, because he lives, we have full confidence that all our sins are forgiven. And because we are covered in his righteous robes, we can now draw near to God without fear. So the question to be asked is this. Why would we turn to anyone or anything else? He is enough. Our greater Melchizedek is a minister of help in the times of our great troubles. His is the power of an indestructible life.